Welcome to Startup to Scale, a podcast by Food Bevy. I'm your host, Jordan Buckner. Join me as I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, seasoned industry experts, and everyone in between as we unlock the keys to growing from startup to scale. Hey, everyone, and welcome to today's conversation where we're going to be talking everything tax with a couple of our friends here to get some of your questions answered. For today's conversation, I would like to welcome in our guests and have them do a quick introduction to themselves, and then we'll jump into some topics that we got in advance for the session. So let's start with Eric and do a quick introduction of yourself. Absolutely. So yeah, happy to be here. My name is Eric Sancino. I am a CPA and co-founder at My Pocket CFO. I've been working in corporate accounting as a controller for small companies, less than 20 million in revenue, up to large multinationals. But I really enjoy helping folks just get their accounting, get their bookkeeping in order so that their financial statements accurately reflect the health of their business and also just helping folks understand and tell their their financial story. So that's a bit of my background in a nutshell. I do consider myself, in essence, an accounting kind of general practitioner, you know, kind of like your doctor, who's your primary care physician. But uh, when there's a tax specific question or a technical, you know, tax issue, you know, that's when I call in the experts like Jared, who's also on the call on the panel. Excellent. Welcome on in. Jared, I'd love for you to give a quick introduction of yourself. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm, or my name is Jarrett Warner. I'm a tax partner with Principa San Filippo. My background is primarily in or working with manufacturers and distributors and then the owners of those businesses. And a lot of the times, my companies that I'm working with are past entities, so your S Corps, partnerships, that structure. But I do work with C Corps as well. But in the smaller, common to have a pass-through, flow-through type entity. And so like, like I said, my background is primarily in manufacturing dis- distribution. And that's, I guess that, that's where I'm at. I've been doing this for about 17 years now and with enjoying my time with Sintaba. So we're ready to go. Who's up next? That's great. I appreciate it. And then Austin, do you want to give a quick overview of the work that you do? Yeah. Appreciate that, Jordan. So uh, yeah, I'm Austin. I'm head of partnerships for a company called Tax Taker. And essentially what we do is help startups and other technology companies and innovative companies secure government tax incentives. So we work with folks like Jarrett and Eric, you know, we're kind of a member of the special teams. We come in and, and you know, focus on kind of this one very specific portion of, of a company's accounting and do it very well, and then kind of leave it up to to you know, the folks like Jarrett to really, uh, to be the quarterback and stuff like that. So exciting stuff. You know, we were able to save companies lots and lots of money every year. And these incentives are, you know, available. You know, it's, it's a lot of companies are unaware that these incentives are available to them. So excited to kind of talk more about that a, a little later. Excellent. That sounds great. And we have a couple audience participants as well who will be listening and have some questions for us later also. So to... Kick us off. You know, I think we're coming up into tax season very soon. We're kind of in the thick of it. And there's a lot of a lot of issues that founders and people in the food and beverage industry are dealing with. So, Eric, I'd love to kick off with you to understand what are the common kind of issues or, or mistakes that typically come up during this period? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things obviously, you know, you should be aware of as a small business owner is making sure that you file your taxes. You know, tax season, we're in the heart of tax season. I'm sure 
that uh, you know folks like Jared are very very busy right now with the April April 15th deadline coming up but you want to get ahead and just you know reach out to your tax preparer early um that's something that will make a big difference in order to just make sure that you get your taxes filed even if you have to file an extension you know your tax preparer can help with that as well so just you know getting on your tax preparer's radar getting in there getting your you know your books in order that also helps for you know the bookkeeping standpoint making sure that you know you're ready to go you know at the beginning of the calendar year with all of your financials in order so that you can just kind of kick things off and get going for tax preparation Excellent. No, I think that's really good. And then Jared, what about you? Are there some of the mistakes that you see CPG brands making? Yeah, I think, well, to Austin's point, not realizing what credits and incentives that they may qualify for. So there's, you know, a lot of times the food manufacturers don't necessarily know that they might qualify for an R&D tax credit or a work opportunity tax credit based on their employee base. Looking at one of the big things during the last couple years is the employee retention tax credit and trying to identify, make sure, or identify whether or not you do qualify for that credit because there's a number of different ways that you can qualify. If you're in a restaurant business or a business where tips are received, so tips credits, uh, if you own your own building, potentially a solar credit if you put solar panels on. So identifying what types of credits you may benefit from. Another thing that we see is a lot of overcapitalization. You don't you can have a fixed asset policy for your book purposes of $2,500. So a lot of companies actually have a, a policy much lower than that. So they can actually increase that to a $2,500 policy and allow a lot more expenses to go through. But it, a lot of the times it does depend on the business and whether or not it makes business sense to do. But that's something else that we see quite a bit of. One of the biggest things now with some of the new state tax laws is ensuring that you're filing in all the appropriate states that you need to be filing in. And a lot of that's changed now to a customer-based filing requirement rather than just where you have employees or you have inventory. You may be required based on where you have customers now. Um, and along with that, goes your sales tax filing requirements and any kind of gross receipts filings that you might have that you wouldn't necessarily be thinking of. There's a number of different things to kind of look into, but I think another thing or another item that we see quite a bit of is international tax exposure to the extent that people are subject to international taxes or have an international presence. So we do see that coming up quite a bit where you don't realize that you actually do have a filing requirement um, in the U.S. to report your international activities. But in addition to what you're doing internationally, you may be needing to file there. And then, Jared, are there any... I'm just kind of thinking through too, is like there, so most of our listeners are probably going to be under $5 million having sales, more, you know, grocery food and business, food and bev. Are there any specific issues that you see founders run into? I know one thing that I see a lot, and frankly, you know, we were learning through with my business is accounting for cost of goods sold incorrectly and reporting it as a PL instead of recording things as assets before they're sold. Is that something that you see a lot of too? Oh, we do. So, I, and that's a good point. It's an interesting point, actually, because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act actually allows us under probably $26 million now in revenue over the last three years, the average gross receipts. To go ahead and do that where you're not carrying the inventory, you can expense your inventory as a cost of goods sold. Uh, but you'd have to do a change in accounting method to do that if you were previously capitalizing the inventory and carrying it on the balance sheet. Generally, business owners would like to track and know how much inventory they have on hand and understand their costs so that they make sure that they're 
charging sufficiently to have a profit. And especially with inflation the way it is now, you want to be able to really stay on top of your costs. But now as a 5 million revenue company, you're, you have the capability of expensing your revenue currently if you want to do that and, and you make that election to do. So it's actually an, an option to be able to expense your, your inventory as it costs currently when it's incurred. And that's definitely good to know too. Have either of you or any of you seen issues with CPG brands working with uh, like a tax accountant who doesn't specifically work with in the food and beverage industry or or kind of growing businesses? A lot of times I've seen founders work with like, oh, they do like my family's personal taxes and then we'll have them do our business taxes. Where are the kind of mistakes or missed opportunities do you see there? Uh, I would go back to... On the, go ahead, Jared. Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I would kind of go back to, to the different types of credits that they may qualify for and not having a full understanding of who qualifies for, for what, like, like the research and development tax credit. A lot of people think that that's got to be in a, a more scientific type of field rather than a food manufacturer. So there's a lot of opportunity there to qualify. And it, some of it's around like the different payroll requirements. So S-Corps, if you're a 2% shareholder, your health insurance needs to be included in your wages and then deducted on your personal returns. That gets missed quite a bit. Partnerships, the partners aren't supposed to be getting a W-2. They shouldn't be paid wages. They're paid as distributions and subject to self-employment tax. So things like that we see quite a bit when we take on some of the, some new clients that are coming from a one-person CPA shop. That's not to say that there aren't, there's definitely very good one-person CPAs out there as well, but Sometimes that's, that's what we see as being missed. And Austin, you work with a lot of the, these uh, tax credits. What are some of the questions that you see come up during during this time? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones we get is, well, what if I'm not profitable? If I'm not, you know, if I'm operating in huge losses, can I still benefit from these tax credits? And Jarrett alluded to the, the R&D tax credit, which is kind of the one we focus on the most. And the answer is you can absolutely take advantage of especially the R&D credit if you are pre-revenue. The great thing about it is you can use it against payroll taxes. So if you're a company that's less than five years old and you have less than $5 million in gross receipts, you can elect to use the R&D credit as a dollar for dollar offset against payroll taxes. You know, that 6.2% FICA tax that you that each and every employer has to pay in, in the country. So this is just such a good way to kind of just reduce that operating cost. And one of the other good things about it is you can take advantage of it every year, such as that you're continuing to invest in your product to make improvements to your product. So that's one a very often a misconception about some of these tax credits. So I just can't use them if I'm pre-revenue. And Austin, let's dive into that R&D tax credit. What is it? What qualifies for, and looking at kind of packaged food and beverage brands, what are the things that typically would qualify for tax credits? Yeah. So to no fault of their own, so many food and beverage manufacturing and CPG companies, they're just unaware that they're eligible for these government-sponsored tax incentives, especially the R&D credit. And they can actually save tens of thousands or more every year for their investment in product development, you know, for activities that they're already performing. 
So, you know, you can ask yourself, has your company created new product line extensions recently? Have you modified product formulations or manufacturing processes to create products that might taste better or be more nutritious, have better consistency or have longer shelf lives? Have you improved existing production processes to improve efficiency? You know, if the answer is yes to any of these and more, then there's a strong chance that you'd benefit from the R&D tax credit study. You know, even something like functional packaging improvements can qualify. You know, that's one that often gets missed. And then as far as is what it comes down to, it's going to come down to what your qualified expenses look like. And for a, a CPG company, that's typically under three buckets. So it's W-2 salaries for anyone involved in the R&D process. So folks like scientists or nutritionists or dietitians and technologists, anybody that's informing product development or R&D. And then in addition to that, any 1099 contractor expenses for anyone involved in the R&D process. You don't get quite as much you know, bang for your buck on contractors. You get about 65 cents on the dollar, but they certainly impact the credit. The credit is primarily wage-driven, W-2 wage-driven, but you know, contractor expenses also can qualify, like I mentioned. And supply costs used for prototyping is another one. So you can kind of combine all those, you know, those three buckets of expenses. And yeah, that's how we kind of calculate what you're, how we base your R&D credit on. And, no, I think and, that's good. and then one yeah. kind of quick thing, I think just to kind of give examples, and I know it's going to vary a little bit just based on the situation, but with my previous company, T-Squares, we did say a test manufacturing run with a contract manufacturer, and it cost us about $10,000 for the time to do it. And the idea was to use that time to dial in the process to see if they could manufacture it. And that was a cost that we paid to them up front. It, was, it kind of went towards I guess, like their contracted time. Then we also had ingredient costs that went into that test run um, Mm -hmm. and the founder's time, you know, my time and the partner's time and and being there on site for, you know, eight hours for the day. Would those expenses qualify or which ones or which ones wouldn't? Yeah, absolutely. The short answer is yes. Almost all of those expenses would qualify. The only, you know, kind of time that we wouldn't want to qualify for someone who's a W-2 employee or maybe they're a contractor is just things, kind of like administrative things like hiring and firing or things like that. But anything related to product development, if you're informing product development in any way, then yes, those expenses can absolutely qualify. Okay. Even to add on to that, Nelson, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it also includes like if the owner or the founder is kind of managing and, you know, has oversight that time towards managing an oversight of, you know, manufacturing process also counts, even if they're not like hands-on, you know, doing it themselves. That's absolutely correct. And the good thing about it is the IRS actually allows for reasonable percentages of time. So you can estimate what your time might, you know, your allocate your time, how much of that was spent towards R&D. And if you estimate that is 50% or 40%, um, and that sounds reasonable, and then you have some documentation to back that up, then that's completely fine. It doesn't have to be an exact percentage. You don't have to back into that and make you know crazy calculations to back into that. It just has to be reasonable. No, that's awesome. Okay, perfect. I know there's a ton we can dive into deeper there, but I think that's something that brands should definitely consider and reach out to and really see what they can qualify for. I think the one thing I found is most brands assume that they don't qualify and so they don't go through the process, but I always recommend that founders try and see what they do qualify for because it can also go back a couple of years. So it's not necessarily just this year's activities, but I think how many years can it go back? Awesome. It's like three years. years. Yeah. Statue of limitation lets you go back three years. Perfect. I think that's great. Yeah. So switching yeah, three, issues. Three, okay. three years federally. And then if you're in California, 
and you're doing the work or the R&D work in California, then you can go back four years for California purposes. Yeah, there's yeah. also lots of state level. Some states have amazing R&D credit programs. So you could be eligible for state level credits as well. That's awesome. Switching gears a little bit. I know one question that I hear founders ask about a lot are, when do I hire a full-time employee? And when do I kind of go with the contractor? And then some of the implications of that. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that process? Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, that hiring and, you know, the growth, you know, path is, you know, it's different for every, every founder, every, every person. And, but, you know, some of the important considerations to make are definitely from a tax perspective, you know, whether they're a 1099 contractor and you're paying them not as an employee or a W employee and, you know, you process payroll, you get together with a payroll processing company and make sure that you're, you know, abiding by all the different payroll regulations. You know, for 1099 contractors, you know, a lot of questions always come up on, you know, what's my responsibility? What do I do? What's my responsibility from a tax perspective? Because listen, as a small business owner, you're paying people for various services. You're paying for a photographer to take professional photos of your product, a marketing professional to manage your Facebook and TikTok ads, et cetera. And so ultimately the IRS, you know, dictates that you would issue a 1099 to any non-incorporated contractor providing service if you pay them more than $600 in a calendar. And so a copy of that 1099 form goes to the government and it also goes to the contractor. And that 1099 indicates the company's name that you're paying, their legal entity name, the dollar amount that you're paying them, and their either social security number, their EIN, depending on how they're as, as a business. And then Eric, when do you need to pay third-party service providers? Like if you're paying a company that's maybe like a S-Corp or C-Corp or like an LLC, like when do you need to issue 1099s to them versus not? Yeah, so 1099s should be issued for, in essence, non-incorporated businesses. So if they're like, you know, individuals, sole proprietors, partnerships, et cetera. Now, your question may be, you know, well, how do I know? How do I know if the business is, you know, how they're incorporated? Um, so that kind of takes a step back then to the W-9. So I always encourage our customers is when you engage with a new service provider, you send them a blank W-9 form and ask them to fill out a W-9. And that shouldn't be a surprise. That should be expected. And that is the form that you would hand to them. They would fill it out, send it back to you. And that is what they would fill out for what their company name is, their legal entity. There's a box that's checked on the, as well as their social security number or their EIN so that, you know, you get that upfront from your vendor, from your contractor. And then throughout the year, they're doing work from you, you're paying them. And at the end of the year, it's ultimately your responsibility as a business owner to calculate the total amounts that you paid them and then issuing 1099s. Now, the 1099, if you have a tax preparer, they can usually help out with that. There's online services that can help out with that as well. But that is an important aspect is just capturing that 1099 or capturing the W-9 form from your from your service provider. And just what I've seen as well is it's best to get those upfront before you start working with someone than to pay them and think like, oh, it'll probably be under 600 bucks. And then it goes over and then they end up like being delayed or not wanting to send you the information. That's right. And so and we, we usually we usually have that. I mean, when we engage with vendors and contractors, we have a standard you know, agreement or sometimes our contractor has an agreement, but we always attach a blank W-9 to the back of that agreement so that it's very clear that it's just another piece of paperwork that everyone, you know, fills out and signs. And from this perspective, it's, you know, your vendor, your contractor, a service provider would be the one to fill out that W-9 and send it back to you. So it's a lot easier just to get it up front at the beginning when you start to engage 
rather than you know after the year ends and you realize oh yeah I have to send them a, a, a 1099 and you never got the W9 so you don't know their social security number it's a lot harder to do after the fact <laughs> if okay. you're if you're withholding payment for service until you get that W9 right you're in the power seat then because they want to get paid obviously I think one of the important things is distinguishing what is an employee versus what's a contractor. And I think early on, when you first start business, you might be treating a lot of people as contractors rather than employees. And so you, that line can get blurry and you can end up getting in some pretty, you know, penalty-wise trouble with the IRS if you're continuing to treat people that are technically employees as contractors because that you're you're not submitting the payroll taxes that you need to be potentially not providing the insurance that you should be if they're actually employees. So there's risk there. And usually the distinguishment is whether or not that contractor is working with multiple different businesses. Are they? Do they have multiple streams of revenue coming in? If they have a set office at your place of business, their name might be on the door. If you're kind of controlling their hours and telling them what work to do and how to do the work, they're probably an employee at that point. But if you're giving them a project, they work on it, and then they give you a deliverable, you're not necessarily in control of when they're working, how they're doing it, then they're probably a contractor. And typically, if they're, you're paying to an EIN rather than a social security number, that's a little bit lower risk as well. So if they've got an LLC set up or, or even, I mean, a corporation, but you're not going to 1099 the corporation at least, but that is going to lower the risk. Um, so that's something to consider, I think, as you're looking at these things. That's a great consideration. Yeah. So if anyone's if anyone's curious, just go online and Google co-employment. There's some a lot of interesting legal cases out there about you know situations where there have been lawsuits for co-employment, which is in essence, you know, an employer paying someone as a contractor, but treating them like an and uh, you know, if the employer loses that case, they could be subject back for you know, benefits, taxes, employee-related taxes, et cetera. So yeah, that, that's a great, a great point to bring up. I see a lot of times that founders might not have the best accounting and bookkeeping practices throughout the year and kind of just dump everything on their their CBA for tax time. Are there, I mean, I think best practices are to have a bookkeeper be doing ongoing accounting. Do you have any suggestions on, you know, do you use the same person to do your taxes for your accounting and bookkeeping? Is that typically someone different or any mistakes there? And that could be Eric or Jerry. I can start. I think in our firm, it's typically different. We have a separate department that does some bookkeeping, but a lot of the times it's either done internally or the client has a separate bookkeeper that they're working with. Generally, we like to see it on a monthly basis so that, you know, that's going to help with doing some of the planning that needs to happen, both from a business perspective, as well as from a tax perspective to be able to plan for the future cash flow. And so that's typically what we see. And usually best practice would be to, to maintain it on a monthly basis so that you can do that planning. Yeah, and there, I mean, there are folks out there, CPAs that do bookkeeping and do taxes. Some do one, not the other. I mean, the way I like to think about the accounting profession, the CPA profession, it's not all, not all that different conceptually than, you know, doctors and lawyers. You know, if you have, you know, if you need surgery, you wouldn't go to your children's pediatrician. You know, if, you know, need a patent or a trademark, you wouldn't go to a lawyer who practices family. And accounting is similar. I mean, there are some folks who are tax experts and they do taxes. And there are some CPAs who do bookkeeping and some do both. And so, I mean, really, you know, you want to make sure what I always recommend to our customers is that, you know, you're working with folks who 
understand your business, the kind of industry that you operate in, and also just you know have that expertise both from a tax perspective and a bookkeeping perspective. You know, I see some folks that come to us that you know have had bookkeeping done by someone who just didn't have experience in that industry. And I can look at their financial statements and say, these just, they don't look right. And other folks who come to us and say, oh, well, we haven't filed taxes in, you know, a couple of years. They say, okay, well, we need to find, you know, someone to help you with your taxes. So, you know, it is just important to make sure that you're working with folks who are, you know, specializing experts in your industry. And it could be, like I said, the same individual, but in, in many cases, it's different. You have either, you might be doing the bookkeeping yourself and have someone doing your taxes, or you might have a bookkeeper and someone else doing your tax preparation. There's some CPAs that will take a stance of saying like, hey, let's minimize the amount of taxes that you owe and try to do a bunch of things to really minimize that amount. And then there are others who say like, hey, the business is kind of what it is. Like you pay the taxes and it's the sign that you're doing well, it's a business. Do you have any suggestions or things that you've seen from your experience? I, I would say that as long as you're not doing anything that's against the law, then that's probably okay to be doing that type of planning. If you're kind of shifting expenses around from year to year or something like that, then I wouldn't recommend doing that or taking that advice. I think from a CPA perspective, it's more you want to make sure that you're not doing anything that could potentially get your clients in trouble or get yourself in trouble, which means that you're going to be following the tax law and not doing anything that would put either your client or yourself at risk. To that extent, though, there's certain planning things that you could be doing. If you have equipment that you need to purchase, and maybe you don't necessarily need it until January of the following year, maybe you buy it in December, you put it in service, and you go ahead and get that depreciation in the current year rather than waiting until the following. The last few years, we've had 100% bonus depreciation. So you could deduct that full amount of that purchase in that year that you placed it in service. So rather than waiting until 2023, you put it in service in December 2022, and you get that full expense in the 2022 rather than 23, and you've reduced your 22 tax liability by doing that. There's nothing illegal about doing that. It's just, you know, it's kind of timing when you're making your purchases. So there's, there's definitely ways to plan, but you want to make sure that you're doing it within the law. Yeah, there are lots of tax strategies out there. Right. To make sure, you know, that are, you know, potentially in the best interest of your business that may, you know, minimize or reduce your tax liability. And you are absolutely within your rights to, you know, to implement tax strategies that reduce your tax liability. So it's always good to be kind of in line with your tax preparer. And as Jarrett mentioned, you know, if, you know, doing your financials on a monthly basis and, you know, being able to provide that to your tax preparer or even have conversations with your tax to, you know, if you're, going to be doing something, buying a manufacturing plant or you know doing something big with your business, there are tax planning strategies that may help you with your decision making on the best way to construct a transaction or when to do it, et cetera. So it's always a good thing to be kind of in on the same page with your tax preparer. And then you know your tax preparer would give you the guidance to help you with your tax planning strategies in accordance with the tax code, of course. Excellent. Really appreciate all the feedback today from everyone. I hope it gives everyone some good thoughts to go into this tax season with to make sure that you are planning your tax strategy for your business appropriately. So Eric, Jared, Austin, thanks so much for being on today.
Yeah, thank you so much. And I just see this quick question from Ashley here in the chat about equipment machinery. Does that fall under the R&D credit claim? So depreciable equipment is typically would not qualify. We mainly want to hone in on things like the raw materials used for prototyping and those salaries and stuff like that. Perfect. Thanks so much for answering that as well. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Yeah, thanks, thanks. everyone. Appreciate thank it. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.